The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. As China moves to pass its national security law, is it time to offer the Hong Kong Chinese a way out? We also have a look at the backlash to the killing of George Floyd in America and ask what does it mean for President Trump's re-election prospects? And last, something that's not pandemic or politics, I find out about the culture that animals have. First up, in recent weeks, the British government has been drawing up plans to allow former colonial subjects in Hong Kong to have a longer visa stay in the UK. But in the cover piece this week, Fraser Nelson argues that this doesn't go far enough. Instead, we should be offering all three million Hong Kongers who are eligible for the status full citizenship. He joins me down the line now, together with Professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom, author of Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. So Fraser, can you tell us first of all about this campaign? Well, the campaign is a rather long-standing one for The Spectator. When the um, handover of Hong Kong was agreed back in the 80s, when it was still a British colony, we argued that it's OK to give a territory back to China. That was in the 100-year lease. But you shouldn't parcel off the people as well. If they were born British, they ought to be given the choice of coming to live and work in Britain if they chose. If they were happy to stay in China and they believed in this one country, two systems deal which had been struck in the Sino-British Treaty of 1984, then sure, they could stay. But if they were rather suspicious that, uh, that China would renege on this deal, then they ought to be able to come and live here in the same way this the citizens of Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands were given that right. Now, we're renewing that call now because it's pretty clear that the Chinese government has reneged on this. They're now passing... I mean, it's, technically, China is supposed to be responsible for the customs, for the defence of Hong Kong, but that is it. Other than that, the territories are supposed to be self-governing. Instead, you're seeing um, China now pass extradition laws that led to the protests last year that kept on going right up until COVID. But now, after COVID, Xi Jinping sees an opportunity to be a bit more muscular in his defense of his near abroad. This is one of his great personal agendas. And is passing laws saying that the sedition law, which is used to bang up various dissidents in China, will be applied to Hong Kong as well. The British government has declared this to be a breach of the treaty. And therefore, I think it ought to say Given that the, our premise of handing over Hong Kong was turned out to be a false one, we will now let you come and live and work in Britain if you choose. And Fraser, you say that it's not just a moral duty, but also an alignment with British economic self-interest. Well, very much so. If you were to choose a country in the world in which you wanted to enlist 10, 20,000 immigrants, you would choose Hong Kong. It's a country whose education system is better than Britain's, in common with lots of our former colonies, by the way. It's a country which is richer than Britain. It's teeming in entrepreneurship. There was a study showing that something like three in five people in Hong Kong intended to set up a business in the next three years. And also, we haven't done very well when it comes to attracting Asian immigrants. If you look around Britain, it's a kind of invisible demographic. 
I mean, I mean, Cindy, I'm sure you've noticed yourself how many people um, have got two-letter surnames in British media. There aren't that many. We basically miss out in a way that America has not missed out, Canada has not missed out, and Australia has not missed out in availing ourselves of the talents of people from this part of the world, which is ironic given that we've got pretty good cultural and colonial ties. So we should have taken advantage of that first time around. We failed. Now we've got a new opportunity. Jeff, when it comes to this British National Overseas BNO status, can you tell us, uh, listeners, a little bit of background about it? Who is eligible for it? How many are eligible for it? Um, and what, what, what defines eligibility? So the main part of the eligibility has to do with the cutoff date of 1997, which is one of the, the complications of this. I mean, I'm, I think this is a great idea, especially at the symbolic level. I think it sends a powerful message to Beijing about the world paying attention, and the UK in particular, which has a particular responsibility to pay attention, is doing so. But one of the um, tricks with it is that it's largely people born after 1997 who are in a sense most vulnerable to persecution, though others could be as well, but who are most committed to the movement, even though there are people joining the protests from all across generations. So that generational thing is part of where it would be good to find out more details. What kind of options are there for those born after 1997 who also have have many of the exact attractive features that Fraser was just talking about, even if they don't have the historic ties to the UK because they were born after that. They have a kind of cosmopolitan outlook and have many of the things that are precisely what you would want to have coming into your country, the kinds of people. And do you think there'll be much uptake of the offer for those who are eligible? So this is what gets a little bit complicated because there is just such a passionate attachment to Hong Kong, to Hong Kong identity. That's one of the things we've seen lately. The mindset of many people is like attachment to a nation that you're not um, just ready to leave. Something I've been reading that is quite haunting now, Adam Miknik, who is one of the leaders of the Solidarity Movement in Poland, when it was crushed in the early 1980s before it eventually bounced back, he was offered a deal of leaving prison. He'd be let out of prison if he would agree to leave Poland. And he just described why he wouldn't because of his attachment to the place and because of the beauty of the movement that he had been just part of. And I think there are, there are a fair number of Hong Kongers who precisely would be the ones who would be subject to persecution for sedition who are passionately attached to this one place. There's also, and you know, as an American, I'm painfully aware of this right now, and so I'm, it's true of the UK and it's also true of the US, that we're just not as attractive to, um, to people from around the world right now. We've had a squandering of some of the soft power and appeal of the places. So there are some people in Hong Kong who would at the top of their list now that might be Canada or uh, Taiwan or um, Berlin has had uh, an influx of some of the activists. So I think fundamentally it's good to give more options. And I think there's a, there's a compelling moral and historic reason for the UK to give the option. But, but it would be great for Hong Kong people to have multiple options at this moment uh, and try to look around the world at where they think they could live a life closest to what has made them so attracted by what Hong Kong has been. Fraser, so in terms of those Hong Kongers who are a little bit too young to meet BNO status, i.e. those who are born after 1997, 
we know that the protests are skewed towards those younger protesters. A lot of them are the ones out there on the streets. Do you think that maybe our campaign should be even broader to include those young people? It's funny. Right now, I think there are something like 300,000 British National Overseas passport holders. A further, I think, in total, 3 million who are allowed to qualify for that status. And I personally would be very happy extending this to all 7 million people who live in Hong Kong territories. And I can't quite work out why we think this is controversial, because right now we have something like 330 million people in the EU who've got the right to come and live and work in Britain. As far as I can work out, the last 10 years, we managed to absorb quite a few of them, and that worked fine. It is simply not the case that everybody with this offer is going to pack their bags and come from a slow boat from China and land in, in Liverpool. It would, be, it would be great if that were the case. But realistically, you're only ever going to get a small proportion of people who will choose to, to make the leap. And let's face it, Britain has got a lot of making up to do because we let down Hong Kong 30 years ago. We lost a lot of face in their eyes. There are lots of other countries who have been making pitches for those migrants. And we're living in an era where countries have to compete for people. And also, we have to remember that the point of giving them um, citizenship is in a way to make it easier for them to stay in Hong Kong. Because it is basically a card you can play against Beijing. If Beijing thinks that the various islanders there do have the option of leaving for Britain, it will, it, it's, it's something they've got. They might think twice about imposing such draconian contr controls that might lead to a big reversal. Already we've seen, if you want to leave Hong Kong, you can apply for something called a... Um, Certificate of No Criminal Prosecution. They are now being given out at a rate of 100 a day, which is a 50% rise on last year. So there are a lot of people who are now planning to go abroad. And I think it's a bit, you know, it's a bit conceited of Britain to think that they would all automatically come here. I think we've benefited hugely from the high-skilled European migrants that we've got. I, to declare an interest, I, I'm, I'm married to an EU migrant, <laughs> so it would be a bit odd of me to be against immigration. But I think if Brexit really was about going out and into the world, this is an example of what we ought to do. And look at the cultural and historical ties we've got with the rest of the world. And Jeff, you know, we haven't really mentioned much the elephant or the dragon in the room, I should say. What does China think about all of this? So this will be seen, has been seen as interference. And actually, Beijing has made this very strange kind of argument now that's saying that the joint agreements with, the, with Britain that were made and were by definition joint agreements were their own decisions and were not uh, international accords. So we've just seen a persistent pattern of treating any kind of response to this dismissively. I, I mean, do want to pick up on two thoughts. One is Margaret Thatcher, after, after the massacre, June 4th, 1989, you know, when we're speaking on the, the anniversary, so it's, it's worth noting that. A year later, she was asked what she thought of the kind of plight of Hong Kong. And she said going forward that while she was concerned, she thought things would work out because China would want to be seen by the forum of the world to be keeping its promises. Mm -hmm. And here we clearly see um, Beijing not keeping those promises and caring much less about the forum of the world. So anything that can be done to put pressure. But um, at, at the risk of making turning this into a kind of a light note, I was very struck by Fraser mentioning the slow boat from China ending up in Liverpool. Because I think if the UK wants to play on a soft power remaining thing for young Hong Kongers, 
One of the main symbols of the protests have been Lenin walls, named after John Lennon. And in 2014, there were references to the line from Imagine, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. So I think if if you really want to have a thing of trying to get young Hong Kongers to rethink Britain as an attractive place to go to, I, I'd play up the Beatle connection and uh, Liverpool <laughs> there. And Jeff, finally, while we have you here, you know, given that you've, you're an expert on the issue, on, on the city and its history, what do you think about its future? You know, how worried are you that China will continue eroding one country, two systems? And what do the decades coming up to 2047, which is when the system finishes by treaty, what do you think those years will look like before and after that? I'm really, really deeply concerned. I really think that there's been a tremendous erosion very quickly, and there's been a consistent move in. It's also been extraordinary, though, how often Hong Kong people have defied expectations. So I'm torn this way. Both I can't see a positive, uh, a positive scenario in the future, but I also can't see counting out the people of Hong Kong's ability to surprise us. And what do you think is the CCP's plan? Is it just ever closer encroachment? I think it's ever closer encroachment, and the idea is a kind of convergence, increasing interconnectedness with places over the border. They have this idea of a greater Bay Area realm where people would move seamlessly between Shenzhen and Hong Kong. And already some people are living on one side of that border and working on the other, which is you know just very, there is that kind of, uh, of integration. And they just want to see more and more of it. But the dynamic is setting up where the more there's an effort somehow to try to get people in Hong Kong to forget about being separate from people across the border it's done in such a way that ratchets up the desire for people in Hong Kong to protect the things that still make them different. And But the, the scenario clearly in Beijing's mind is to work with compliant, complicit officials in Hong Kong itself, who've been doing a lot of the dirty work for them, and to try to make that ever closer. And in fact, today, just today, they passed through the law, making it punishable for up to three years in prison to show disrespect for the national anthem of the PRC. And this is at the same time that a local song, a kind of counter anthem, Glory to Hong Kong, is getting more and more support and love from the people there. So that, I think, symbolizes so well this kind of tension between the two things, between Beijing's desires. But at the moment, you know, Beijing has largely been taking advantage of the distraction of the world to try to encroach more and more and to ramp up that process. So it's particularly meaningful when there are um, signals from foreign governments like this, this signal from, from Boris Johnson, that the world is paying attention. And so I think that's one of the important symbolic as well as practical things about this move. Fraser and Jeff, thanks very much. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political commentary with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Stock up on your summer reading with a 12-week subscription, in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a copy of Spectator columnist Lionel Shriver's new book, The Motion of the Body Through Space, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Lionel. Next, the backlash to the killing of George Floyd at the hand of a white policeman has led to protests across the country and indeed across the world. President Trump, a figure that at the best of times isn't exactly one for unity, hasn't seemed to make things better. 
Freddie Gray writes in this week's issue about how the protests impact Trump's re-election prospects, and he joins me down the line now, together with our own Kate Andrews. So Freddie, can you start off by telling us, do you think this hinders or helps his campaign? Well, at the moment, I think uh, it has hindered his campaign. His response to the riots was seen as inadequate across the board. He managed to troll the left or or the kind of progressive centre, if you like, uh, as he always does on social media. But he didn't seem to back it up with any direct direct action, which would have pleased his uh, supporters and fans. So I think he managed to annoy both sides of the political divide initially. And indeed, the polls suggest that he has been suffering as a result. He could, in theory, turn it around, just like Trump often does. He sort of um, snatches victory from the jaws of disaster. But at the moment, as I say in my piece, it looks very much like Trump's luck has deserted him. Kate, what do you think have been his mistakes in dealing with the movement so far? So something I find quite interesting is that Trump, as a president, arguably has a better record on criminal justice than many of his predecessors before him. He signed into law the First Step Act a few years back, which is worked to reduce prison populations, gives judges more flexibility with America's crazy mandatory sentencing laws, and has done a lot of good stuff that really helps the black community in America who are disproportionately affected by you know, in many ways, a a, a very poor criminal justice system. He's backed off hugely from the war on drugs, again, something that disproportionately affects the African-American community over in the States. And yet, once again, his narcissism and his narrow-mindedness has crept into the way that he has handled this. There could have been a version of history where his previous actions on criminal justice reform and, you know, feeling skeptical of police brutality could have come down on the side of the peaceful protesters, could have been more supportive of those who wanted to find justice for George Floyd. And, And I think he could have worked with the states in particular, many of whom have representatives, white and black, who are saying, we need to stop the violence. But as soon as the protests turned on the White House, and as soon as he decided to take it personally and make make these protests about him rather than about the African-American community, that narrow-mindedness set in, and he started tweeting crazy things, arguably violent things. And the language that he uses around using the military against American citizens is genuinely frightening, something you would never in a million years expect in a free society. But now you have his former defense secretary, James Mattis, who is, you know, by no means soft on on law and order, condemning Donald Trump for his actions. And I think Freddie's right. He's he's really losing support just across the spectrum. Freddie, in that statement that Jim Mattis gave to The Atlantic this week, he says that the demands of the protesters is wholesome and unifying. So is there a split amongst Republicans between those who want to see a tougher clampdown on the protests and those who think that their demands are legitimate? I think with Mattis, I think I disagree uh, with Kate slightly in that I think um, Mattis has very much been on sort of team never Trump for a while, even when he was within the administration, he was briefing desperately against Trump. So I think Mattis is sort of playing politics there. I don't think it's a sort of cry from the heart, but perhaps I'm just being too cynical. As far as Republicans go, I think what's interesting is, is, is how he's actually losing some of his hardcore base. You look at someone like Ann Coulter, who is a, a very clear representative of what a lot of Brits would would consider to be the far right, uh, but certainly a very sort of robust American right-wingery. 
And she is absolutely outraged with the president because he's just tweeting. He's not following it up with action, or at least he didn't for a long time. And I think it would be a great irony if he uh, lost the election because he was unwilling to be politically incorrect in the days following the riots, which, apart from his absurd tweeting, he was, in his politics, very careful because he doesn't want to put off black voters who he's been trying to woo very hard in the last few years. Kate, and what about Biden in all of this? Has he managed to sound more presidential by comparison? Well, I think he has, but it's by comparison, as you say, Cindy, because the president has acted so woefully. Freddie's right that everybody's playing politics, and I find it extremely depressing because I think that first and foremost, we should be talking about the injustices that were committed against George Floyd and, and frankly, the countless black men that he represents. This isn't the first time in lockdown we've seen a senseless killing like this. Ahmed Arbery in Georgia just last month was jogging and killed by two armed white men uh, who thought he was a burglar. This isn't the first time we've heard I can't breathe on video. Famously, Eric Gardner in New York City was put into a chokehold and died years back for allegedly selling single cigarettes without tax on them. You know, this is something that happens over and over again, and the vast majority of people protesting it want to bring that to light. And unfortunately, you do have the politicians playing politics. I, I think Freddie's right about Mattis to some extent. Certainly with Biden, I mean, this is a man who spearheaded America's war on drugs in the 80s and 90s, was very pro-mass incarceration, um, that particularly affected the black community in America. He does seem to have changed his mind on a lot of that. And, you know, whether it's from the heart or not, I don't know. But when people change their policies to better ones, you know, it's, it's hard to scoff at that. But the problem is that the most important person in this who can actually affect change, Donald Trump, because he is president and he is in the White House, is playing politics too. And I I think what we've always known about Trump is that his inability to rise above the nitty gritty of politics and actually lead is something that he struggles with. And in this time of coronavirus and now these protests and now sadly riots as well and, and people who are looking just for opportunity to set things on fire, the combination of all of that is not Trump's strong suit and it's just coming through so, so clearly. Freddie, so far we've been talking about the impact of the movements and the protests and the riots on the election. But taking a look at the protests themselves, you know, you write in your piece, you highlight what you call the political correctness of America's institutions. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, yeah, I mean, again, I don't want to always bring things back to Trump. But the reason I mentioned that was in relation to Trump. In that one of the things he, he won with was promising the American people that they, he would sort of roll back the tide of toxic political correctness that really does grip America. And I think uh, he's failed. He's singularly failed on that front. I mean, I thought some of the media responses to the riots were insane. And, you know, you could see uh, that a great example was the MSNBC reporter who stood outside a burning building saying that these protests were not generally unruly. And then you had various uh, politicians weighing in with the most extraordinary statements, blaming white men the mayor of uh, Michigan, I think it was, blamed white men for the protests. Sorry, no, it was Seattle. And then you also had the Attorney General of Boston who said, yes, America is burning, but that's how forests are made, which is sort of surreal and weird statement that, that actually legitimises violence and looting. So I think, you know, America's just... We had it in London last night. We had um, a lot of the media talking about how righteous the, the cause of Black Lives Matter is, and, and I'm sure there are righteous elements to the Black Lives Matter cause. Um, no one could disagree with the slogan. But at the same time, you have obvious unlawfulness 
intimidation of the police, uh, intimidation of regular people, smashing things up, and in America, arson. And uh, a lot of people seem to think you cannot condemn that. I think that's a kind of madness, and that is a kind of toxic political correctness. There has been trouble in distinguishing the peaceful protests and you know they can peaceful protests can sometimes look very angry there's a lot of rage there rightfully so but there has been a struggle on the part of some media outlets certainly in some representatives to separate these peaceful protests from these riots but something i have been heartened by in, in america at least is that you have a lot of local representatives in these cities speaking out against the violence saying don't burn down your own backyard there are a lot of videos going viral in america of of young black people stopping white people from smashing things up and separating that opportunism and, and just the desire to to throw bricks through windows and to loot from the actual course of, of justice that people want to see pursued. So at the same time that we're seeing absolutely horrifying footage and stories of innocent people's lives being put at risk, you are also seeing moments in which the American people are standing in front of the police to protect them and in, in which people are stopping others from looting. And I think that it's, I think it's complex. I think it's mixed. And I think, unfortunately, in order to move past this very difficult time um, in America history, and it, it really does feel like a moment, we just are lacking leadership, frankly, from across the political spectrum. But leadership does have to start at the top. And at the top is the president of the United States. And it is very difficult to see, especially now with you know only a few months left really until Americans are thinking about voting, how the president could turn that around because he has doubled down so hard, not on supporting the peaceful protests, not on uniting America, but on potentially using force against the American people for speaking out. And that I think is something that many will just see as unforgivable. And finally, to both of you, I suppose, I mean, election aside, this is obviously an incredible thing to be happening to America at the moment. It's a pivotal moment that history lessons are going to be teaching about probably in the future. What do you think is the way out of the short term and, and in the long term out of this, the anger and the situation like this? Senator Tom Cotton this morning wrote for the New York Times calling for military action. Freddie, is that something that, that should be used? Well, I think it's very interesting that the New York Times published that piece and is now having a kind of coup, institutional coup within itself, because so many New York Times staffers are horrified by the idea that they wouldn't all just say exactly the same thing over and over again. I think America is, uh, you know, it's sad for me to say I I love America, uh, but America is, you know, as people have started saying, looking a little bit like a failed state at the moment. It's collapsing in terrible ways. And of course, you know, you do have to consider the rise of China and the fact that the indispensable nation is no longer uh, the supreme unipolar power. Uh, So I think there are deep fundamental shifts happening in global politics that are changing the nature of America and that America is going to go through a very rough time. On the positive side, I would say, and I want to be positive, I would say that America has always been tumultuous. It's a restless giant. uh, And I hope that it will come out from all this unrest and all this grubby politics ever more strong. Kate? I think in the long term, the way that America moves forward is to genuinely tackle these structural inequalities in policing, but also criminal justice more broadly. Police officers for decades have benefited from something called qualified immunity, in which victims of police brutality basically have to prove that the police officer's actions were a violation of rights already established by the Supreme Court. So you've had years of policemen and women 
basically getting away with actual murder sometimes because of a really, really small technicality that wasn't already previously established, regardless of the other circumstances around it. And I don't really see a way that America unifies until civilians walking down the street, regardless of the color of their skin, although, you know, we, we need to acknowledge that it is disproportionately black people who are affected by this, and police officers are living under the same law and held to the same standards when it's just very clear that somebody has acted with force and violence out of line. Uh, I think the difficult thing in the short term is to see that bridge, how we go from people feeling, you know, legitimately very angry and very frustrated to moving towards what we do, how we act and, and, and how we heal the country. It's, it's hard to see in this moment, especially with lack of leadership at the top and, you know, across the the political spectrum, the infighting, the politics. It's, it's just hard to see how we move on. Freddie and Kate, thanks very much. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political commentary with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Stock up on your summer reading with a 12-week subscription, in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a copy of Spectator columnist Lionel Shriver's new book, The Motion of the Body Through Space, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Lionel. And last, if you've had enough of pandemics and politics, you might want to turn to the animal kingdom for something a little bit different. Simon Barnes writes about a conversation that he had with ecologist Carl Safina a few years ago about the cultures that animals have. Did you know that sperm whales in the same ocean sing the same songs, but those songs are different to sperm whales from different oceans? I'm joined now by Carl and Simon so they can have this fascinating discussion on air. Carl, this is a topic that your book, Becoming Wild, is all about. Can you tell us what we mean when we're talking about culture in the animal context? The book is about culture in other animals. Well, of course, it it involves what culture is in humans as well. And culture is the habits and the behaviors and even the attractions that we learn socially and that are passed along socially. It's often been thought of as something that is distinctly human, exclusively human, but it turns out that many other kinds of animals rely very heavily on social learning and they have their cultures. And those cultures can vary from one population to another, even within a species. Can you give us some examples? Well, one example from the the book is chimpanzees. That's probably the easiest way in because they look a lot like us and they make tools. So in some populations, they make certain kinds of tools. In one population, they make no tools that are made out of sticks. That's the only population that does not. In another population across the continent in West Africa, they use stones uh, to crack nuts. There are there are other chimpanzees that live where there are the same nuts and they don't know how to crack them. So those are cultural things. And that's that's just one example from the book out of out of many. Simon, I mean, as humans, I suppose we probably think of culture as, I don't know, the opera and galleries or something like that. So do you think um, some people might think that this use of the word culture might be anthropomorphizing animals a little bit? It's one of the, supposed to be the great sin of observational science is to uh, think of, to get animals and humans confused. 
that Carl uh, and I spoke about that in his his yard on Long Island, and I remember Carl saying that uh, to start off as a basis that humans do not necessarily share the same things as humans is good science. To say they couldn't possibly do so is bad science. It's this assumption that humans and animals are absolutely and irreconcilably different seems to me just obviously absurd. Charles Darwin said that the difference between man and the higher animals, great as it is, is always one of degree and not of kind. But we've spent 160 years or so trying to ignore what Darwin said. Yeah, that's that's right. A more a more fundamental thing about the distinction between humans and animals is there is no distinction. Humans are animals. So there is a range of animals and there's a range of things that different animals do and that humans do. And um, as far as us thinking about culture being the opera and art galleries and that kind of stuff, that is part of our culture, but there are many cultures around the world uh, for most of human history that uh, had no concept of anything like opera or an art gallery. So that's, that does not define what culture is, although it's part of what our culture is made up of. That's a very fair point. Simon, on that resistance to thinking about humans in the same way as animals, do you think religion and the way religion plays a role in our human history contributes to that insofar as many religions see human beings as qualitatively different from animals? Absolutely. Again, in the book, uh, Carl uh, refers to the scala naturae, the, uh, the scale of being, which starts at the bottom with rocks and the minerals, and then goes up through the plants to the animals, to the higher animals. Then there's the division, and then there's wonderful old us, and next above us is the angels. Disraeli, when he was uh, asked what he thought of Darwin's book, he said, uh, the question is whether man is an ape or an angel. I am on the side of the angels. Uh, and that is a line that's been used in a many, many contexts subsequently. We want to see ourselves as a subspecies of angels, where the fact of the matter is we are quite obviously a species of ape. It's the truth we don't like very much. And that's why we get ideas that Animals have culture. We want to have barriers. Animals can't have culture. They can't use tools. They uh, can't use language. And yet, where, as Carl says, where animals too? What is the problem? What, what is there to get tense about here? Well, I think that what it, that there is to get tense about is how insecure we are. And, uh, uh, you know, we seem threatened by the idea that other animals can perceive things, can value their own lives, can enjoy life. Why, why is that threatening to us? Uh, a neuroscientist I know, Lori Marino, once said to me, if you imagine chimpanzees with automatic weapons, that's us. And what's going on, you know, I, at the time that was good for a good chuckle, but if you see what's going on with how we treat each other over the, the most minor cultural divides within our own countries, and the literally death, destruction, and rioting that's going on, angels does not seem to quite describe us. We have a long, long way to go. Carl, do you think part of the 
resistance to seeing us in the same way as animals is down to modernity insofar as modern society if you're especially if you're living in cities as more and more people are you don't get many interspecies interactions you might not build that empathy that people in the past might have had with what was just outside their doors or do you think that's romanticizing it a bit no i think that's exactly right many many original tribal hunter gathering cultures who were completely embedded in the living world and totally reliant on and with many opportunities to observe and the need to know in great detail the other animals around them, what they were capable of and how they respond to their their world. They had a sense of awe and mystery and often perceived correctly that many other animals have superhuman qualities. They they can be stronger, faster, they have uh, greater eyesight, keener hearing, sharper smell. Uh, I mean, if you created an action hero that did those things and put a cape on them, they'd be a superhuman superhero. But because there are other species and we're so insecure, we say we don't care. Uh, my friend, the author Paul Greenberg, uh, once made a comment to me about what, what he called our tidal retreat from the living world. Many of us nowadays have essentially no meaningful contact with nature or, or the ability or the time or opportunity to observe the life and behavior of almost any other living species with the, you know, with the exceptions of many people live with dogs and cats and many of the people who do think that they're quite smart and, and, and very feeling and, and capable of a lot of nuance and a lot of perception, which is true. Yeah, it's also tr true that, I mean, I uh, have spent a lot of my life uh, living with horses. And with horses, people will say, you know, the philosophers that uh, will say that, you know, they are nothing to do with us. They don't have emotions. They don't have moods. They are just animals. Well, if I had followed that instruction, I may have been, well been a very good philosopher, but I'd certainly be seriously injured or dead, because we <laughs> don't treat a horse as an individual person with uh, perceptions and problems and moods, then you are going to get yourself in trouble. And what do you think this knowledge gives us in terms of practical implications? Does it mean that maybe we shouldn't be eating meat, or maybe that we shouldn't be putting animals in zoos? Are there lessons that we can learn in terms of how to live from this knowledge? I think we enrich our own lives by reaching out beyond our species. It goes back to what Peter Singer, the philosopher, talked about expanding circles of concern. Initially, we early humans, uh, their concerns was their family, their local group, their tribe, and everything else was foreigners. So we have expanded that into concepts of nationhood uh, and then of race and of religion. And now we're moving towards the last frontier, which is to move barriers of concern beyond those of species. So we feel that we have a concern and a responsibility for non-human creatures. Carl and Simon, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Do pick up the issue to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as David Mitchell's diary, a notebook from Prue Leaf, and Oxford professor Carl Hennehan, who writes about care homes. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.
The Spectator magazine combines incisive political commentary with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Stock up on your summer reading with a 12-week subscription, in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a copy of Spectator columnist Lionel Shriver's new book, The Motion of the Body Through Space, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Lionel.